0: Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email artof podcast at gmail.com we look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy you the art of wargaming on the On the field of the art of war 25 through36. Welcome to the Art of War gaming on the Ear Verm network. I am your host Yagma Lark and it is good to have you back in this new year. We're, we are looking forward to hopefully being able to expand once again depending on what the world landscape and the old virus pandemic thing looks like. Uh, we we got a lot of exciting things planned for this year, but that, of course, is dependent on many things, much like military science and activities themselves. Uh, Trying to correctly predict the future is something that only charlatans claim to be able to do, in my opinion. In my opinion. There's too many probabilities. Too many probabilities on what's going on. So, let's get down to brass tacks. Apart from uh, a nice little rester that we just had, being able to, to kind of take a load off during the darkest time of the year uh we were not able to get down to bifter there uh, or battle for the ring sorry um most people just refer to it as bifter instead of bftr anyways um from what i understand it was a, a pretty cool event the fighting was decent um, there there were, of course, some political issues, socially speaking, from what I understand, but from everybody being repressed and kind of locked away in this pandemic madness. And you, 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 you I'm sure you've noticed it in your own life amongst your own friends. Uh, people are just a little bit more agitated, a little bit more prone to drama. And if you haven't noticed it, well, good. I'm, I'm glad for you. That's <laughs> that's pretty cool because most of the social groups that I know of have experienced at least a little bit of political upheaval as a result of what's going on. And so it makes sense that the first large event here in the West that uh, kind of combines these groups of people who have uh, been stewing a little bit of bad blood, I'm sure, bringing them all together, and uh, there's, of course, some drama that's going to ensue as the balance is reestablished and uh, kind of these these nuanced interior dramas play out and while i understand that most people would have heard that information and having not gone went whew and felt like they dodged a bullet i feel like i missed out if you haven't noticed from the show and my focus on uh on uh, power politics and and how they influence what's going on on the field or on the on the table this is a perfect example of Everything being up in the air of, of whatever static framework existed before has been upset. This has happened many times throughout history where you have a, a central government or where you have a central alliance of some sort that suddenly falls apart. And there's this power grab that occurs because the the lines are no longer drawn. You don't have those those hard barriers and edges. So... What looks to a lot of other people like petty drama, to me, looks like everything else that's played out in history. So um, overall, I don't want to give a bad impression. Overall, I hear the Battle for the Ring was outstanding. And, you know, just about every aspect of it was pretty darn cool. But, of course, we have to be realistic here and understand that, and it has nothing to do with the organizers, by the way. This could have happened anywhere. It just happened to happen at Battle for the Ring because they were the first big event that was going on this year and the first one that's really been solid since all of this picked up. And so it was inevitable. It really was inevitable. It's it's not anybody down there's fault. It's not the staff's fault. It's not the planner's fault. It's really not even the people's fault, in my opinion. It was bound to happen. And so if you missed out on that, well, then you probably missed out on that and i don't know what your opinion is but i'm sad that i missed out on that particular thing and of course the fighting and the and the social element i had so many friends who were there that would have been lovely to see but you know what i'll get a chance to see them later so there's no reason to rush anything there's no reason to make imprudent decisions as our studies have shown what have i been up to shortly in in, in a couple of words what have i been up to over the break well i've been playing a lot of nights. Because uh, I knew that they were going to go in the shop along with my AdMech and so I was, you know, getting getting my kicks in. They're not very good still, this edition, and with the additions of these, uh, you know, the, the custodies and the Gene Stealers, and what we're looking at for Tau, um, yeah, Knights do not look playable for the next little bit, at least until they get their Codex. So I am, uh, of course, not playing them at the moment. They are in the shop with my AdMech and so I'm going to be focusing on Gene Stealer Cult and Dark Angels, but. Primarily, Gene Stealer Cult, because I don't know if you have looked at the Gene Stealer Codex at all. I'm sure those of you who are Gene Stealer players are hopefully as giddy as I am over it. But this Codex is outstanding. It keeps some very, very, very good um, mechanics that make the Gene Stealer Cult what they are—the kind of unique ambush-oriented faction within this uh, within this game of 40k—and it also brings in a lot of new elements. The things that make it good and the new elements that kind of give it additional flavor are really awesome. They balanced out a lot of stuff that needed balancing, uh, brought up some stats and abilities that needed to be raised. And overall, I'm very, I'm very glad with the Codex. The point values are very reasonable and the... Weapons and, and tactics and strategies that are involved there are really tempting and I'm very much looking forward to, to using them more. I really like the way that they set up making your own cult, like the, the rules that are there, um, because a lot of those are, are preferable. The, the actual cults themselves, this is unlike most other codexes, like if I was going to play just bland space marines over playing dark angels, that would be silly because even though there are cool ways to make your own space Marine chapter, when it boils down to it, playing an actual space Marine chapter, um, is, it works better, especially when you're dealing with, with something like blood angels or, or dark angels where they have their own, uh, models where they have their own abilities and, and kind of ways of playing. So it was silly for me to be using a dark angel army as anything other than dark angel, which me doing my Deathwing stuff definitely showed me (laughs) that was beautiful. However, the Gene Sterne cult is uh, is fascinating. So I'm going to be really digging into this, and hopefully um, having some more uh, stuff on the YouTube, some more videos on the YouTube. Uh, it's it's hard for me to remember to do that. It's actually far more involved. Like uh, the videos themselves, of course, are like an hour and an hour half long. We're trying to get the time down on that, but the time that's involved in doing it, like we're at like seven or eight hours to make one video, and While I'm generally okay with that, that's the time of day slash night that I'm awake, most other folks who work a nine-to-five are not doing well during those hours. So at the moment, we're trying to figure out a way to do it quickly and well without destroying my guests. So we're going to figure that out, and we'll be getting back to you. Um, Hopefully, some good stuff coming soon. Unpainted models still, but... That's just that's just kind of the name of the game until they, they come back, and then you'll get to see my gorgeously painted knights, and my gorgeously painted ad mech, because TF does such a good job, and, and you will get to see it, because I'll be putting it, of course, on the YouTube and on the Instagram, so, uh, I, of course, I'll be I'll be pepping it up then, too. Lastly, before we get started on this episode, um, something to look forward to, a proprietor of a uh, blog or, or magazine from uh, the DC area had reached out to me about being on the show and so this is uh, Jason from military miniatures and they've got this this cool periodical that comes out and uh, he's going to be coming on to talk with us about that and and the way he approaches war gaming and kind of you know help each other out a little bit so um, more on that as it comes up it's just kind of an exciting development moving forwards but i think that's everything that i can possibly gush about from this last little bit but and and you have come here for a specific reason so let's get down to it and we're going to discuss on the theory of the art of war and and kind of what this section means which is the means of the means no i did not stutter before the transition when i said the means of the means that's exactly what i meant klauswitz as we know as we've been studying can be a little convoluted sometimes but in this particular section he talks about the baseline that is needed the means before you can actually get towards the means of victory now we're going to go through this um for, the, for this episode. So I, it's, a, it's a weird concept. I'm sure there's a different way I could phrase it. But that's, that's kind of just the boiled down point of what he's talking about here. Let's look at this. Let's look at the, the graduated requirements and the graduated resources that we have to work with at each of these levels, these, these means that we speak of. We were sort of getting to it last episode. The idea that positive theory is impossible. Of course, we spent that entire time trying to figure out what is the theory and all that. And and we may think, oh, what is, if that's impossible, then what's the point? Well, the problem is that we cannot construct a solid, solid scaffolding supporting a guaranteed victory. Because that would be the perfect strategy, wouldn't it? Being able to do it every single time and guaranteeing victory every single time. Well, that would be excellent. But unfortunately, that's not the way the world works. The world throws a lot of things at us that we do not expect. And when we're talking about this theory, even like somebody could have a very good idea of what's going on. Clausewitz may have a very good grasp and a good idea of what's going on. His theories may very well have have lead to victory, but there's no guarantees Even amongst that theory itself, I believe we've discussed this before that there's no guarantee that we are reading this theory and interpreting it the same way that Clausewitz would, or the same way that he even intended. And when we sit down with other people who are reading the same book, they have different perspectives on the matter than we do. So to say that a theory is perfect would mean that every single person who read that theory would also have to interpret it perfectly. And that doesn't seem to be a human thing, nowhere (laughs) Does that happen so that that is one of the things that stands in the way of perfect theory and then of course everything is constantly changing even if we did find a perfect theory for this one moment in time that doesn't mean that it' will work in the very next moment or even if we did find a perfect theory, it is hubris to think that our opponents would not study what we are doing in order to work around it or do that perfect theory as well. if you're doing this theory and somebody else is doing this theory, who then wins? we go back to chaos then. So positive theory is impossible when we're talking about a guaranteed victory. If that is our object, then we're, we can't, that's that we, it's not guaranteed. We can't do it. So what means do we have at this point? What means are left by which any sort of theory is possible? Cause again, we're not talking about an absolute positive theory, but just any theory When the difficulties are not equally great. when, when, When we're looking at these different abilities to perform what are we dealing with well as we'll see later on in this section it is easier to make a solid theory for tactics than for strategy and there's a number of reasons for this that we're going to go over later but one of the big things when we're dealing with theory or you know tactics or strategy or objectives is the difference between frontline command and that of a low rank commander and that of a high rank commander and, and moving on and, on and on upwards because there is a difference in perspective and a difference in the means available to each of these levels of course when we're dealing with people of low rank whether it be uh, ncos that are in the field low-ranked officers uh, frontline fighters they have a more confined worldview. Their field, their ability to perceive what's going on is really limited to their field of vision, to their particular area, their, their bunker, their trench, their lane, whatever it may be. That is the entirety of the world to them. That's their battle. And that's what they are dealing with and focused on. Their ends and means are fewer as well. They don't have the mean. They're not necessarily have everything. They're not necessarily all calve and Infantry and artillery and those sorts, if they don't have all of that available. They can have it as support, but it's not in their direct command. And of course, the ends that they have are also rather limited. This one platoon is not expected to win the entire war. They're expected to do the best that they can at being a platoon in their particular part of that war. But as you go up, that becomes different. The data becomes less distinct because, again, if we're talking about a ground pounder, they can see it. They can see what's going on around them. They know the blood, sweat, and tears and engine oil. They can see for themselves what's going on on the field. This is different the higher you go in command. The further you become uh, from the front line, the more rear echelon and protected a commander is, which is what generals are. They're kind of removed for the most part. We've seen how that can go horribly wrong if they are not Take General Stonewall Jackson and how he perished. (laughs) He was out doing reconnaissance work, which was not General's duties. And it got him. So there's a reason that they are kept distant, but it's also, it can be a hindering factor because of these these different uh, perspectives, the lack of specific perspective of what's going on on the ground. Of course, high rank is going to be more abstract. And so there's a lot of information to process. So it, the means that are available to these different um, levels are not equal, but neither are their difficulties equally as great. So that's, that's just something to remember as we also move forward. Knowing this, knowing about these different variances and knowing about the, even the differences between the chain of command and what they are capable of, we realize that theory must be in the nature of observation, not of hard doctrine if we're looking for the military infantryman's handbook that tells us exactly how to fight every war in every, um, every situation, it does not exist. I sought it when I was younger. I figured that somebody somewhere had come up with the perfect theory or the perfect strategy to be able to handle whatever war threw at them. And I'm still looking. <laughs> Ever since I was a young boy and up until now, I'm still looking for that perfect theory and I do not think I will find it. Because it's not in doctrine. It's in a matter of training ourselves to react well to the situations, to read a situation and kind of know what we're supposed to do to achieve victory there. I know we've talked about the concept of Kudel, which is, you know, being able to look at the field, look at a situation and take it all in in a moment and try to achieve victory. Well, this, this usually doesn't come out of nowhere There are some generals, there are some fighters who just have the innate ability. They stepped onto the field for the very first time and they just had it. And we're not talking about the geniuses here. Remember that any of this talk of theory, any of this talk of coming together on any sort of idea and us working on theory completely negates the existence of genius. Genius completely blows any of this stuff out of the water. What you and I have to work for in terms of like Kudel a genius does not. So we're not talking about geniuses here. We're talking about you and me. And for us, the more learned we are in the subject, the better our predictions can be, the better our coup d'el is. I didn't necessarily walk onto the field for the very first time and really understand what I was looking at. Not in an immediate sort of way. It may have been something, in introspection that I was able to grasp, but at the time it was meaningless to me. And so I had to learn to look across the field and know what I was dealing with, know at a glance who was over there and what their capabilities were. Same thing with my team, having to look at it. But that wasn't innate. That wasn't something that I just walked onto the field and was able to do. It was a lot of defeats. It was a lot of wrong ideas playing out. It was a whole lot of mistakes that led into my ability to be able to do that. It was was a long and hard process. And that's going to be normal for most of us who do not have this ability to just immediately do it, but it is necessary because it's, it's needed to be able to do this through observation and not doctrine. Doctrine would be easy. You know, I I would love doctrine because again, then you just stick to this particular way of doing things and bada boom, bada bing, you've got victory. But instead we have to rely on intuition in a lot of cases. And to build that intuition, we need to be knowledgeable. So every, everything we learn, everything we can possibly cram into our brains will contribute towards this. You know, if, if a person has never been on the field before, never seen a situation, they might be left grasping for the right idea or the right direction in which to take that battle. But somebody who's well-read in the subject, somebody who's even watched a lot of military movies, Game of Thrones, whatever, they may see a situation and go, oh, I remember this from this particular uh, event, hopefully history, because that's usually a better <laughs> tell of what's going on. But a lot of the, a lot of the shows and movies recently do tend to have a, a fair deal of accuracy, which is nice, but we may see a situation and go, okay, I've seen this before. I've read about this before, you know, so I can, I can kind of imagine what I'm supposed to do or not supposed to do. You know, perhaps I read about this in history and, and the the side that I'm thinking about was the one who made a very wrong decision, and that wrong decision cost them the battle and/or war. Okay, I know what not to do. Not necessarily know what exactly to do, but being well learned helps us very much know what not to do, and kind of gives us an ability to be predictive because we understand the limitations, we understand the boundaries of what we're coming to expect. It's not just everything infinite. It's been narrowed down, which is nice. So what we're looking for then are common sense broad maxims rather than an algebraic equation. Like we said, you don't just put in information and then suddenly comes out the solution. It's more of a matter of feeling it out and understanding that there are some truths that are usually vague. Think about Sun Tzu. We're going to jump back to Sun Tzu right now. And even though Clausewitz has had nothing nice to say about the man, there is something to say about his maxims they are widely applicable. You have the ability to look at a lot of various situations and apply these ideas in ways that are not super specific, that can be tailored to the situation itself. And so that's very nice. Napoleon's maxims are very much the same. They are these broad ideas. An army marches on its stomach. In that statement, he's not telling you how to put together a logistics team. He's not telling you how to assemble a supply train. He's just letting us all know that an army marches on its stomach. And even that small maxim itself has us keep our, keep our minds on it, keeping our focus on such things. So this is the same way when we're dealing with theory, uh, especially when it comes to strategy, these broad maxims of things to remember, general things to remember. You know, try not to fight uphill, easy to remember how you apply it on the field is up to us. So at this point, theory starts to become possible and it ceases to be in contradiction with practice because when we're looking at practice, there's so much that's variable. There's so much that we cannot control. And so when we're not trying to work toward a positive theory that's hard set in the stone, but instead relying on our intuition, on our kudel, on our common sense and our broad maxims, suddenly we're able to start to formulate some sort of theory. And again, it's based on common sense. And these theories are and have to be natural to the mind. Nobody looks at a theory that is completely off the wall and says, okay, this is going to work because if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And if it's unnatural to the mind, if it's something that is too difficult to process or to execute, if it is something that is too abstract to really have any value in the field, then it it just, why, why, why destroys our efficiency and our ability to win. So it has to be natural to the mind. We're looking for things that make sense. So when we talked about making solid theory for tactics, let's dive into that a little bit right now. Let's talk about tactics. Because theory considers the nature of the ends and means here on a limited scale. As we had said before, low rank, you know, got a confined, their data is distinct. This is what we mean by tactics. And I just want to redefine this again. I know we've talked about it in past episodes, but when we're talking about tactics, we're talking about what you can see. If we're a frontline fighter, if I'm in the, in the line, the f- folks that I can see, the, se- the part of the line that I have control over, or not control, but influence over in this area, I practice tactics and tactics. They're way easier to come up with something that works. I've seen it all the time in bellegarth You've got a unit that comes together and they've got a really solid tactic that works almost every single time, not just because of what they're doing, but who's involved. You know, there's certain units that have a very strong center. And when they're working together with their, with their defense and their pole arms and their archery that strong center is formidable and of itself but then they also have very good flankers flankers that are incredibly practiced at harrying the enemy and making them open up and make mistakes that the strong center can then capitalize on when some when a team is able to do this tactically they can make it work quite often if they've practiced it quite a bit like when the dark angels take the field and we're doing our thing those tactics are practice that those tactics are ingrained in us. And so if it works, it works. And can we come up against something where that tactic doesn't work? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's always a hard counter to what you do. There's always a, a different style that complicates what we're attempting to accomplish on the field. So now, again, tactics are not perfect, but it's easier to come up with something that works most of the time when we're dealing with tactics. So what are our means? Let's talk about our means and our ends and tactics. What are our goals and how can we get them? Well, our means are the army, the disciplined forces at our disposal, immediate disposal. If I'm a solo fighter, then it's my own sweet self, my arms, my legs, my weapons, my armor. I am the means. If we're a small squad, then we are the means. If we're a flank, we are the means and so on and so forth and so whatever we have whatever we can really affect which is really no more than let's say like a squad or a team that's like 10 people really most of us individually would attempt to control that many or influence that many people in our direction tactically speaking so that's what we're working with We're working with our immediate environment and the people who are there. And those means can be different depending on what we have. Those folks who had a very established team and a very established tactic, their means are a little bit different. People who come from disparate sides and have to work together when they haven't practiced doing so there's different means available there, different expectations, but the ends for all of it are the same. We're trying to accomplish the same thing regardless of what we have in our means tactically, which is the retirement of the enemy or gaining possession of their position. Now, we had talked about this early in, earlier in Clausewitz that these are the only two aims in war, really. We're either forcing our enemy to retire, doing a, dealing a blow to their military power, or seeking to gain something, whether it be resources or whether it be a, you know, a strategic defensive position, whatever the case may be, we want it and we're going to get it. And these ends require different things, of course. They require different methods of engaging our enemy, different tactics. And so we must focus on our ends before we can really decide what the means are going to be required for it. So let's take, for example, the retirement of the enemy. A lot of times in Bellagarth, for instance, or in a lot in a lot of different fighting sports, the retirement of the enemy is what we're looking for. We're looking to defeat <laughs> our enemy, right? And so in in going for this, we, we attack our enemy's strength more frequently. We're, we're focused specifically on breaking the center or, or making our enemy. just defeating them i'm trying to over explain this but (laughs) we're we're focused on killing the enemy and so in doing so we're looking for the hardest ways to hit them in their military to speak of we're looking to eliminate their chain of command we are looking to break up their continuity we are looking to break their spirit all of these things that are required to make our army retire from the field lose their ability to fight and be a threat that's what we're looking for in the retirement of the enemy. When we're looking to gain possession of a position, we're still engaging the army, obviously. If there's any battle taking place, we can't just walk away from it and suddenly, you know, we win. There still needs to be that engagement. But instead, our focus is slowly putting our th- our, our force into that position. Whether it be an objective on the field or an objective on the table, because we have both. A lot of times in... in In intellectual wargaming or in physical wargaming, there will be an objective on the table or an objective on the field that is not related to destruction of our enemy. It's just something to hold. A position that we either get points for or that we get something awesome for, whatever the case may be, that is the objective. Much like in real battle, throughout much of history, the, the, the reason for a battle is not necessarily always or really even most of the time to destroy the enemy it's usually to get something to take possession of a, a castle a city whatever the case may be so th- th- but it makes a difference it makes a difference how we approach the situation depending on how many things there are to gain it, it, positions there are to gain for our possession or the strength of our enemy all these things are going to influence our tactics and we're going to be discussing that ad nauseum later on in the book There are some other circumstances that are pretty consistent. Anytime we're dealing with tactics, there are going to be circumstances which are always going to challenge the means. The first one is the ground or the terrain. Where are we fighting? What is the field like? Is it an open expanse where we can see our enemy clearly and they can see us and it's just going to be a a nice little slog to the other side? Are we dealing with a table that has a lot of terrain in a particular area? Or are we are dealing with a blank side? Something that's wide open. These things make a difference every single time. And again, they're going to be different every single time. So these circumstances have to be paid attention to. The time of day is going to matter. Perhaps not so much for things like 40K and other intellectual wargaming. Because, well, even that would work. As I was saying before, like there's folks who aren't usually up at the hours that I am. And I don't want to think that I am winning because I am running to them into the ground energy-wise. But... I'd be lying if I didn't say that that probably is a factor. People getting tired. I'm not doing it on purpose. It's just, you know, when I'm available and when they're available. But that time of day does matter. And it really matters when you're dealing with on the field fighting. The angle of the sun, very important. The temperature, very important. Of course, visibility, very important. Time of day, very important. And then there's weather. Any sort of weather. If we're dealing with wind, wind is going to shift what we're doing on the field. And, and again, when we're speaking of tactics, this is mostly going to be physical wargaming. Tactics when it comes to intellectual intellectual wargaming or something something that's on the tabletop is like this unit against this unit, that tiny, small engagement that isn't necessarily personal. We are not that particular uh, Imperial Guardsman who's locked in combat with a termagant. We're in command of the overall battle. That's only a small section of what's going on. But for those of us who are Right in close, that's where tactics take place. So in physical wargaming, wind is a big deal. It throws off our shots. It can uh, pull at our different positions. It, of course, can spray up things like sand or water. So wind is a definite factor. Rain is a factor. It can make the field slick. Again, it obscures vision. And then he very much stresses the existence of fog. Recall that this is the man who coined the term fog of war, but in this particular case, he's not talking about the hazy data cloud that exists outside of our, you know, limited actual intelligence, or limited actual data, but in this case, actual physical fog. There was a battle we discussed recently where the fog played a huge role. It allowed the French to get into a very good position and beat an army that nobody thought that they were going to beat including most of their commanders, I imagine. So fog, also a very big thing. I've seen it play a difference in in something like Belagarth or Dagger here. So those things are always going to be present, always going to be an issue when we're dealing with tactics. So now let's move to strategy. So that was the means, right? Tactics are going to be the means by which we achieve the next means, which is in strategy, right? Because the means that we have in strategy are the victories that we get out of those tactical maneuvers. In something like Balagarth, when we're on the field, just because I win in my flanking maneuver, doesn't mean that those attacking the center or the other flank were just as successful. We tactically may have done well, but overall the strategy may have failed because something went wrong in other sectors. So strategy is dependent upon many different things. It's of course dependent on the, the general restrictions that we have discussed previously, but it is also very much restricted to what, is, what, what means they have through these various tactical victories or defeats. The means that we have in st- strategy, of course, decrease the more that we have defeats. If we're losing models on the table, if we're losing fighters on the field, our means are reduced our ability to achieve that victory, the overall victory, is reduced. And the end in strategy, the overall victory that we're going for when we're dealing with strategy is, of course, peace. Seems weird that war would have its absolute goal as being peace, but really war is just politics (laughs) uh, taken to the extreme. And again, it's, it's something that is resolved when we achieve what we need, whether that is the possession of the positions that we want or the retirement of an enemy permanently, their ability, uh, like them being neutered and not being able to attack us, not have the ability to hurt us anymore. That's what we're looking for. That's peace. And so the victory in all these little fights all around the, the one-on-one skirmishes or the unit on unit skirmishes, this is what plays into tact or strategy. And this is why strategy is so complicated, because it relies on these variables that aren't necessarily within the overall control. We can put our best unit into the position where they can do the best job, but at the end of the day, they could they could accomplish it or they could not. It's always a roll of the dice. You know, that well-rehearsed unit that we're talking about, the one with the strong center and the good flankers, they might be able to consistently win, but that doesn't mean that they're always going to win. And so if we depend on them to win and then they don't, that affects our strategy as well. And this is why redundancies are important. Making sure that just because we fail in one area tactically doesn't mean that our overall strategy fails. There has to be a backup plan. If we're moving to push on this objective, it cannot be an isolated thing. There has to be backup somewhere, whether it's another move to make a distraction and to split their forces, or whether it's a, a concentrated effort to support that move, that moving unit or that moving fighter, either of the things, these things need to be done in order to achieve this victory. So, and there's circumstances which attend the means of strategy as well. That are very very similar to the ones that attend uh, tactics we always have to consider the country and ground but in this particular case it's not just what we're dealing with tactically but it's the overall theater of war it's not just the one island in the pacific campaign of world war ii it's the entirety of the south pacific right it's not just the the landings at the beaches in normandy no eisenhower was in charge of the invasion the overall invasion not just the one, you know, the one beach, you know, like Omaha beach, but the entirety of the zone going into it, these things make a difference. And, and each of those victories, the victories of the airborne or the losses of the airborne, the victories at the various beaches or not influence the overall ally strategy. And this makes sense, but it's something that, that really should be thought about. And, and again, when we're looking at the the board or at the field, redundancy, redundancy, redundancy. Time of year. Is important as well for a number of reasons. One, the weather. You may have seasonal issues, special seasonal concerns like frost or again, more rain. We might have, uh, and, and when we're dealing with real war, if we're dealing with history, the different seasons are going to present different harvests as well. If you're moving around and there's no harvest, if we can't uh, get any food from foraging, that's going to limit our options massively. And this is why most armies back in the when would have wintered. They would have gone in and made sure that they were tucked away for the winter. But sometimes we can use these limitations. Sometimes we can use even these circumstances to our advantage. We can use them to form new means and new ends. A good example of this would be the crossing of the Delaware during the American Revolution. Leading up to that, the British were doing extremely well. The Continentals were not doing as well at all in the field. They were not as practiced as the Redcoats were. And so conventional tactics, conventional strategy was failing. So what did they do? They looked at a place. The Hessians, of course, were, were wintered. Their guard was down. Hitting them would be a large tactical win. And to do so, they had to cross the Delaware. The Delaware was choked with ice, which limited it. We're talking about means being very limited. It was winter and there was a small force, a small kind of scrappy force that was being beaten by the elements. But it was because of these limitations that Washington succeeded. It was because of these limitations that the Continental Army succeeded. I mean, if they they had fallen into the river, if an alarm had been raised, obviously that would have gone wrong. But part of the reason, a big part of the reason for the American victory in that particular engagement was because of using these new means, these circumstances to their advantage, operating outside of the normal medium in order to achieve the victory. And so at this level, we've discussed our means to our means and the objectives that we have are anything leading directly to peace, whether that is the capture of a position or the elimination of an enemy peace is what we're going for whether that piece looks like winning our match whether that piece looks like moving to the next stage of the tournament whatever the cessation of the game is because that's what we're going for we're going for the blow of the whistle or whatever the case may be metaphorically to say you have won the match is over the tournament is over and we won that is peace and hopefully we get to be on top <laughs> and uh, and call the terms when that peace is declared. So kinda to talk about this, but mostly to talk about Battle for the Ring, I've got a good friend of mine on Tink. You, You will have known her from past episodes. And so she's going to be joining us in the next section where we discuss not only the means of the means, but also Battle for the Ring. talk with us today about the idea of chaos, being prepared uh, in the broad sense, and the most recent event, Battle for the Ring, we have uh, my good friend and longtime friend of the show, Tink. How are you doing, Tink?
1: I'm doing really good. How are you doing?
0: You know, I'm doing great and and all the better for being able to talk to you. Uh, we were able to speak the other night when this was all still fresh, but uh, I mean, this is only two days after the event ended, so you're still pretty... You know, it's in your mind, right?
1: I I would say pretty fresh. I'm not gonna lie. Got got some good sleep, so a lot more's coming back to me than than initially there. But yeah,
0: yeah. When I first saw you coming back, I could I I, I was speaking with you over the uh, video chat, but I could smell the campfire coming off of your hair. You know, it was just <laughs> it was very odd. Like I love that look. I love rolling back in and just looking at myself in the mirror and being like. You were outside for prolonged periods of time, so.
1: Oh, yeah, I got, just got some good sun. That was really nice. I, I, I work inside a lot, so it's really nice to see some sun. Uh, but also was really great to, like you said, get a little get a little extra campfire in my soul. Everything still smells like campfire. I I swear, I think my clothes hold on to it a little longer. I know, definitely my sleeping bag. I went to roll it out to, you know, wash it. And I was like, ah, I don't want to lose that smell. It smells so good because it's just in everything.
0: (laughs) No, I love it too. And and hopefully with the season uh, getting a little bit brighter and uh, a little bit more safe, we can all start experiencing that a little bit more as well. But uh, to kind of address that elephant in the room, one of the trials of putting together an event of that size is the idea of keeping things safe especially during this time of covid like normally of course there's the event crud that everybody kind of goes home with but it's different when it's something kind of endemic and dangerous as covid is so we we know that klauswitz failed to take cholera seriously and paid the price for it but from everything that i'm seeing there were several hundred people at bifter and i'm only hearing that a couple of people Came back and tested positive, I and mean, th- nobody even knows if they got it at the event, uh, right? Is that is that correct? Uh,
1: unfortunately, uh, there have been actually a few people who have come back positive, and some of them tested during the event. Some of them tested uh, within the last you know few you know days of us recording, and unfortunately, that could mean that they were exposed during travel, you know, before the event, or could possibly be at the event. Either way, they have been incredibly diligent about communicating with the individuals involved and communicating with the event staff and coordinators. The coordinators have officially made a post and are doing their best to communicate and contact Trace with any and all information that they have, which is really, really great to see. You know, the event coordinators took a number of measures before we came to site and have taken a number of measures while we were there, you know, even as far as command stripping, you know, mini hand sanitizer bottles <laughs> in as many places as they could, like that was really great to see and now they're doing their best to hopefully keep everybody informed so if they need to be isolated they can isolate or test if they need to test
0: well, yeah, and it, it it would have to because for these for the numbers to be as controlled as they were, especially with a community such as ours, there would have to be a lot of those measures in place. Can we, would you mind elaborating on some of the other ways that um, they they made a, an effort to keep things safe and have those redundancies? You know, not just one way of keeping the the d- disease in check and keeping potential spread in check, but multiple levels levels of such.
1: Uh- Absolutely. First and foremost, uh, it was announced ahead of time that you would need to be vaccinated in order to attend the event. And if you were unable to be such as in you were not of age, you were perhaps a child of a fighter who was coming to the event, uh, that there would you know be a special area to which that you would be um, actually camping in at the event. And you would as well, you know, Everybody is wearing masks, but you as well um, were, you know, having uh, the mandate for masks. And there were a number of uh, measures as soon as you got onto the site. As soon as you got onto the site, our check-in is called Troll. Uh, so once you got to our check-in, you had to present your vaccination card as well as your ID uh, upon form of entry, and even if you paid ahead of time, you still had to show your vaccination card and ID, and Mm -hmm. if you, for some reason, could not, uh, then you would, unfortunately, be denied entry to the event. That that was the very first uh, entry-level measure. Upon, you know, actually walking out to the site, it was really great to see you know, people who were sparring, even 101, wearing masks. That was absolutely wonderful. Even individuals who were casually walking around were wearing masks. And yes, the masks were a variety. Some were wearing, you know, decorative cloth masks over, you know, their N95 or hospital masks. Um, But everybody had some form of covering, which was really great to see. And still in the spirit of, you know, what we do, which was really great. Our vendors had signage. The event had signage as well. And like I said, there were sanitary stations, uh, not only places where you could get hand sanitizer, but there were also stations where you could physically wash your hands with soap and water. Yes, we had plumbing bathrooms, but it was really great to have the mobile sanitary stations where you could wash your hands. And we also had porta-potties that were serviced and cleaned every day, which was great. It was phenomenal to see that the campsites were spaced out quite phenomenally, actually. And the number of uh, campers within those campsites was not as many as we have definitely had in past years. Uh, I'm not sure, quite sure of the number, um, but I'm not sure we surpassed. Uh, four, maybe 415. I'm not really sure. I know somebody who came to the event and checked in, I would say maybe midday Saturday, and they were number 370. And that, I don't know if you can testify to, but is very small in comparison to uh, 2020. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, Bifter is a, is a very large event and was only getting bigger by the year. I, If I recall correctly, folks were talking about potentially moving the site because it was becoming too numerous for the site that we were previously at. But, uh, of course, this year, I imagine that it was quite comfy.
1: It It was actually impressively spacious. I was really actually surprised, pleasantly so, to be completely honest. It was... A trek to get from one side to the other because, again, we were very much spaced out. But it was really great to see people from who even came from all over the states. We had people from the East Coast, um, Southeast, Northeast. We had a lot of people come in from all over and they were willing to take precautions for themselves and the community and if there was somebody who had, you know, entered the field who was perhaps wearing a mask that was uh, of the mesh variety, they were actually asked to exit the field and properly, you know, adorn a, a proper mask. And then they could enter the field again. And they did so. They came right back and they were properly wearing a mask and it was great there was no you know there was no fight there was no discourse and so that was amazing um if there was somebody who was improperly wearing a mask they were again you know told to leave the field especially if it was a persistent issue and i think that was only maybe one or two individuals which again i don't know if you can attest that's impressive in terms of you know contestation from you know individuals on the field
0: oh yeah oh yeah absolutely
1: so yes, it was, it was really great. I, I really, in terms of what I could have expected and what we could have prepared for, I am, I am very kind, grateful for the you know, event coordinators and all the messages, all the efforts that they did to make us safe for this you know, event.
0: And, you know, I think Klauswitz, uh, on his deathbed bound with cholera would probably look at the measures that were able to be taken at this event and uh, uh, perhaps think about his errors in not implementing them, you know, at his time. Of course, they didn't have germ theory at the time, but uh, no, that's outstanding. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I know that we didn't make it down because uh, of, of safety reasons, but I'm glad to know that uh, other folks were safe at that event and that uh, all those precautions were taken. Uh, shifting topics a little bit here, a lot of times when folks have been away for a while and, and the and the communities have become more desperate or, or, or you know um, spread out in terms of not just space and and people but also in terms of ideology and practice, that when we come back to the field on a national level that there's often an imbalance that occurs, whether it's, you know, more reds and spears, uh, like glaives and spears than normal, or more sword and board than normal. Uh, did you notice uh, an imbalance of this sort on the Battle for the Ring field?
1: Oh, actually, that's, that's actually very fair. Um, yes, there was, there was actually quite a, a shift, I would say, in terms of field presence, uh, I have been a part of uh, this community since 2014. Uh, my very first battle for the ring being 2015. And since then you kind of, you know, you kind of have a taste for for who is there, how many uh, projectiles you might come across, how many, as you said, poles you might come across, how many shields you might come across. Um, but when it comes to dealing with people who are, on on the field more than others, I feel like this time I saw a lot more uh, range fighters, uh, which mm. is absolutely fair given again the circumstances of of health and whatnot. Um, I would say some people who perhaps this was their I don't know f- maybe even first time or you know only lo- first time at an event getting to use uh, that weapon set. Um, but I would say there were only, I would say, I don't know, I count on one hand how many times I died to a physical blade and, and strike while I was on the field. Uh, I would say the rest of those times were either a uh, javelin uh, being thrown or a arrow uh, killing me.
0: So speaking of, I'm assuming that archers were one of the primary uh, ranged uh, units that you were dealing with uh, in terms of, of trying to, yeah, just just deal with?
1: Yes, actually. That is, I would say, at one time, I believe I would see, at maximum, about five archers, possibly on each side. It was rather impressive. There are times where we have had one or two you know, on on each side, and that is a pretty average, I would say. When you start getting three and four on either side, uh, those who do not have a shield start having a pretty rough day. And once you get past that, it, it's it's you start to get a, a what I would uh, call a bit of a uh, range slash like power imbalance, depending on how many other shields that you have if you have enough shields to create some safety for those who do not have shields then it might become less of an issue to to have that many uh archers uh but in this case there were far far more archers than uh there were you know individuals or shields to protect
0: So in in terms of, uh, let's talk about ratio here, because uh, I'm not sure that uh, the listeners would know what a typical side would be. Uh, Your ratio of, like, archers to other fighters, uh, what would you say?
1: I would say there were five, you know, say we had five archers, uh, two or three individuals with longer poles, maybe... Three or four shields Possibly less Usually less And that was it
0: So that's like half and half Right there
1: So that was So that was our maximum day I would say That was, okay. that was the like That was our really I think good day there were, I think there were You know if we could scale that up Depending on the fluctuation you know I, I'd call that the average of, of our good day um, okay. But I remember a couple of, of fights where there were only maybe two shields and four or more poles or no poles and archers. Possibly, you know, three to four or more archers.
0: Well, I, I assume from uh, your uh, tone in talking about these archers that you were a person who was attempting to go melee, yes? Yes. <laughs> So as a melee fighter, an experienced melee fighter, how does that proliferation of, of archery, that proliferation of ranged capability on the field change how you fight?
1: It honestly depends whether or not I have uh, protection. Uh, there was a point where I was lined up with another fighter uh, who, is also, who is a longer ranged pole fighter than I am. I'm a bit of a shorter ranged uh, red user pole for our poles. And uh, we had another pole user with us, but he had a shield on his back so he could turn to avoid projectiles if they were, you know, thrown or launched at him. And to my left, I had a shieldman who was trying to protect all of us. Oh, Lord. And <laughs> In that, in that moment, you, you come to, to, to realize that you have to adjust your tactic of keeping your head on a not-even swivel. It's more of a, a, a back-and-forth, I guess, I guess we can call it, and uh, keeping track of any individual who possibly might have a throwable weapon while watching for somebody else who might have a pole. Uh, we had an individual with a pole who is, who is very good at, at what he does. Um, he, even though he is, is, you know, and he's really great and and we're really great. We, we are nothing to, to, uh, to an arrow. Uh, so while we are trying to deal with melee coming in, uh, stabs coming in and possibly a javelin coming in. We have to also try and look behind that first line of attack to look for archers who may right. or may not be trying to sneak a shot from you know a tricky angle or just blatantly step out and try to you know shoot you head on, and that constant uh, barrage of you know I would say projectiles and and attack very much puts you in a, in a different headspace that you have to be incredibly uh, defensive while not giving them any space to, you know, come forward and some, somewhat hoping that your team is going to do something really cool right you know next to you so you can, <laughs> you know, hopefully la- land a shot or two before that, before that arrow comes in.
0: Well, you know, this actually kind of uh, is reminiscent of not only the, the period, time period we're studying, but also just kind of the rotation of history and, and the way that arms kind of are, are uh, uh, overcome by the next generation. The, Clausewitz, of course, was living right at the beginning of the age of artillery where artillery absolutely ruled the battlefield. Like um, you had infantry and cavalry who kind of maneuvered, but mostly just protected the artillery while they just hammered each other at a distance. And of course, moving in that no man's land between the artillery was a, was a bad idea, like World War I showed, or even even the Civil War. Um, yeah, that, that no man's land was really a bad place to be. But do you know how that art, age of artillery came to an end?
1: Oh, please tell me.
0: The tank.
1: <laughs> I knew it was gonna be good,
0: and it's gonna be the same thing here. You know, it's that's of course like when when people start to return to the field, I have no doubt that that balance will be restored. That pretty quickly, the very competitive units are gonna be like, all right, there's a proliferation of archers out here. Everybody get helms. Everybody get your big ass shields, and let us make sure that we can we have the tools to deal with what we got. to Tank up, you know. So I'm sorry that you had to be there for the age of the artillery. <laughs> But I imagine throughout the season it'll probably balance out again.
1: I believe so. I believe, including myself, uh, there are quite a few of us who are going to go forth and, as you said, uh, make ourselves some nice new armor.
0: Yes. Yes outstanding yeah and i'm I'm a huge proponent of helms anyways, like even if I'm in my my local realm and I'm just practicing and we don't even have archers or or javelins on the field, I still will well wear my helm because you know people just they they throw random shots on occasion a, a blue shot may go awry, a pole may come down in a weird area, and a helm is just that nice little nice little bit of protection.
1: I can actually very much appreciate that. Lord knows, I've, I've even had you know, like a weapon knocked out of somebody's hand, and it just sure. and it happens to just land funny, and and you get a little little kiss on the cheek, and I wish I was I was wearing my quote unquote my quote unquote face, uh, but yeah, definitely <laughs> looking into uh, some torso armor to expand upon the uh, the belt that we are you know building out. So definitely appreciative of the lessons learned on the field, and as you put it, in the age of artillery.
0: Well, and as we were talking about that, helm is really important in the age of artillery to just make sure our noggins are protected. But also, uh, and not just in terms of being at the home field and and having that protection, but I think this season in particular, having a helm is going to be important because rust is going to be a huge issue. I know a lot of us started, uh, you know, breaking it off last season. I did. You know, I started going back out and was fighting in the fall and in the summer and making sure that my form was at least somewhat copacetic to what was going on in reality but i've I've had this winter i've definitely gotten rusty and i know a lot of other vets have too and there's going to be that temptation you know there's going to be that temptation for us to go out there and imagine ourselves at our peak and not everybody is the uh you know the shys of the world you know who i'm talking about shy you know i'm talking to you And he's managed to keep himself very fit. I'm on your Instagram, Shy. I see you. you. (laughs) And I'm terrified to face this man because he's kept himself fit. He's kept himself good to go. But he's like the 5%. The rest of us, like myself, have expanded a belt size and uh, have definitely lost quite a bit of muscle tone. So did did you see any of that when you were out there? Did you see the vets kind of out there expecting themselves to perform at this level that they just aren't at anymore?
1: (laughs) outside of in the mirror <laughs> uh yes absolutely um i i have been fortunate enough within my uh plague covid bubble uh, i have uh, been had some fighters and we've you know been able to spar amongst ourselves individually you know but that does not prepare you for the for those larger field fights oh, i no. can yeah. can tell you that oh boy uh but yeah you definitely did see people who came out and tried to throw that shot that they've always thrown. And, and, and I, I swear, I, I hurt myself. I really did. I got excited, and I really thought I could do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, a, and that's okay. Like, I'm going... That tells me, though, where I need to work, and that's fine. And there were, you know, some other people who, you know, definitely did too. And we bonded over, over that, you know good old, good old pain, pain, you know, motivator to just, you know, go get some water. But that, you know, that was, I think, also a good lesson, like I said, for a lot of people of, you know, it's okay that we are, you know, I guess getting older by by the COVID year. But when we are coming out to like big stuff like this, that it's okay to start at 5%, 10%. And, and work your way up to where, you know, you're feeling good. I mean, I've I've lost, you know, percentage of effort just because I slept funny, sure. <laughs> you know, I, I'm on my air mattress. And I'm just like, yeah, I can't go as hard as I'd like to today. Um, but it was, you know, there were quite a few people, I think, who not only, you know, recognized it in themselves um, during the, the event, um, but I think there were, unfortunately, some people who, uh, might not have realized it, and hopefully will realize it after the event. Uh, but there, were, there was some frustration, I would say, and some people's fighting. And again, I don't think that was frustration in the conduct on the field. Uh, there were, you know, but they definitely, I think, turned that frustration perhaps within themselves uh, outwards to whether it be, I don't know, taking, you know, shots a little bit less, uh, but also asking, you know, uh, you know, for people to go a little bit, you know, harder than necessary for, you know, kind of the, the game we play.
0: Sure. Uh, And, and it's an unfortunate side effect. I've absolutely seen that coming out. Um, you know, it happened here in our local realm. Uh, there was a problem child who, uh, hasn't been out for a while and we're very happy about that, but, uh, you know, they would come out and if they thought that they were supposed to be able to beat somebody that they, in their mind should be beating that person, well, yeah, they'd slough all sorts of stuff and hit that person way harder than they needed to be hit, proving the point of their superiority, even though within the game they had none of that superiority. And uh, I I imagine that, unfortunately, on the national field, we're probably going to see some of that too. You know, folks who are used to being on top, used to performing at a certain level and have an expectation of being able to beat people, especially new folks. You know, vets take pride in being able to be vets and kind of rule the field but you know i'm going to be coming back and i'm going to be i've been out of the scene the national scene for three years and there's a bunch of kids that have joined in those three years that still have rubber in their spines so (laughs) you know um so i'm gonna there's a learning curve and i have to expect that learning curve and adapt to it it's not good enough for me to dig in my heels and say well these shots worked in the past so i'm just going to walk through their shots until my shot works like what's the point of that What's the point of that? Generate salt, get kicked off the field. No, we got to learn. We got to we got to grow with the times. You know.
1: Yeah. No, I I completely agree. And I think again, you know, as we as we start to, as you put it, you know, knock off the rust. I think some people will will begin to, you know, kind of come to remember that that you know it's you know we 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 are at the point where we need to you know, like I said, adjust and you know just just re-acclimate to the to the new kind of structure we're in. You know, again, like I said, I, there are things that I, you know, shots I tried to throw that I, I cannot throw anymore, and that's okay. You know, I just need to adapt to the new structure that, that, is, that is this, and the new spine that is this, and the new shoulders that are this. Um, but I also agree that there are, you know, there are going to be quite a few people that are going to be surprised about some of these younger fighters coming in and doing good. Um, but I will, you know let everybody in on a secret it's kind of us the broken vets you know and those who you know can't throw those shots anymore who are you know teaching those those youngins how to do the thing and how to and what shots to throw and you know you know i will i will absolutely confess there have definitely been times where i've you know let somebody know hey that that fighter if you ever see that fighter again this is that one shot that one shot that i know that you know is the only thing that I can do to like get that arm that could give me a fighting chance you know any chance to possibly you know win you know a one on one with that person and yeah that's a knowledge we have to pass down and I think hopefully everybody will be pleasantly surprised with that and hopefully they won't take it as you know an affront to themselves and just us trying to expand the game and frankly give us all a new challenge we need a new we need some Absolutely. new blood right
0: Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I always like a uh, challenge always the, the, uh, if everything, if I just got to be perfect, if I got to the top and I was the best of the best for the rest of forever, that would be boring. That would be boring as heck. But, uh, having to put it like being one punch man, I've seen that anime. That guy is bored all the time because he's just the best. He can't help it. He's just the best. And there's, there's no struggle for him. And so I like that. I, I like having that little bit of struggle and making sure that life has the spice.
1: Absolutely. I, I, like you said, I, I want to be learning constantly, whether that be learning a new skill, whether that be learning a new piece of knowledge. Uh, I, I never want to be the best. And I also don't like being right. And I don't like wanting to, you know, be like, oh, yes, that shot will land. I know that's going to land. And you know what? If it doesn't, okay, you know what? I've got something to learn, and I right. love that. It's all. It's hey. Sometimes it's great being wrong. I love being wrong. I, God, do I hate being right. So I am so thrilled <laughs> that you know you you also seek that 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 knowledge and that you know desire to you know no no let's 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 see if we can you know figure this out and like you said have a little bit of a struggle.
0: But I think it's a good space, headspace to be in, you know, coming out of the, the pandemic. And, and if we think, again, that we're supposed to be the best or we, we've got these expectations, we're really just setting ourselves up for failure. So coming into this with a mindset of, you know, we're, we're kind of neophytes again. We need to relearn this, the basics, uh, we need to be readdressed. We need to be reaccustomed to the realities of the field and how quickly it moves and how the, these, this, these different styles from these different places, especially since, like we were talking about, they've had a chance to percolate in these different areas. You know, uh, maybe SoCal has been more isolated from, NorCal is from uh, uh, Oregon and these sorts of things in these different uh, smaller areas have developed. They still keep developing, but it becomes very different. And so when that comes together, the field is very interesting. And so we do need to approach it with with an open mind and uh, a willingness to learn.
1: Yeah. And that's all we can really do to be prepared. And, it, you know, as, as we've very much, you know, learned and experienced, it might not go to plan. We might have the plan. It might not go to plan. But as long as... The backup plan is just to accept it and and roll with the punches and be willing to learn. Really all we can do.
0: Very true. Very true. Well, Tink, I have absolutely loved this session. Uh, Talking with you again has just been a delight as it always is.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me back. It was absolutely wonderful and I am so excited to talk to you later
0: indeed well we will definitely have you on again and look forward to it in the future but for the rest of us we are going to jump right back into where we were with the french revolutionary wars normally be the part of the show where we would sit down together and do some sort of little history lesson, some story uh, or, or the continuation of a campaign from history to illustrate our point. Currently, we're working through the French Revolutionary Wars and soon to be the Napoleonic Wars as well. Uh, as you can probably tell by my stalling, I do not have that for you today. Um, for those of you who have been in high-level college classes, 400-level classes and such, um, I think you will sympathize with me when I use the analogy of going on college break, on some sort of summer or winter break, and when you come back, everything—it's a struggle bus, just an absolute struggle bus. Before the break, you had this nice, well-done uh, routine, some sort of worked-out way of doing things, so that you know the same amount of work could get done in an efficient manner. And then you come back from <laughs> said break, and it's like, okay, well, I got to learn how to do this all over again. So um, I would normally get behind on my schoolwork, but here I don't have to worry about a final at the end. But suffice to say that this episode, we will not have that history section. And the big reason for this is not that I couldn't have just cobbled something together for you guys, because I can, Um, but that I would like to present some sort of factual, accurate depiction of what we're talking about and make sure to be able to, to relate it and loop it back in. So to be able to do this I want to give you guys a quality third section, a quality history lesson. So until I've got this section to such a point that it is satisfactory to me and it's not just one of those, you know, C minus papers back from a break. um, Yeah, but I just want to let you guys know uh, this section will return, but in the future. Um, And I appreciate your patience. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the Art of Wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark signing off.